trips down the front of St. Alphonse's heaps. Missing both the shoes with some broken teeth responses. Bloody stained glass light busted in pieces on the ground. The arresting officer, familiar with the situation, picked him up the day before at a notorious. Hello, folks. This is uh, Ed Fallon welcoming you to the. Uh, the polar vortex. Uh, we're in Des Moines, Iowa here. Uh, uh, Des Moines, Iowa, where it is supposed to get down to, what, 20 below tonight, Charles? Uh, yeah. It, record cold tomorrow and Wednesday. Fun, fun times for all of us. Before we and talk, you say the globe is, the climate's warming. I know. I, I, Donald Trump uh, schooled me on that. He said we could probably use some global warming right about now. Did he go outside and say, see, we have a thing called snow outside in the winter? Yeah. What, what, what Donald Trump failed to recognize was that the uh, Arctic is so warm right now, it's pushing these three pillars of polar vortex, one right into our, you know, the heart of the Midwest, the other into Scandinavia, and one into Siberia. Of course, Siberia, they, they're probably more used to it. Right. All yeah. we need is for Siberia to melt and uh, have all the peat moss out there uh, uh, exude all the methane it's been storing for uh, millennial. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But I want to yeah. take a I want to take a quick second to uh, thank some of our local business partners, Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating critters, large and small, for over 30 years. Thanks to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines. Fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. Uh, thanks to Bold Iowa, uh, building urban and rural coalitions to fight climate change, to push for a more moderate use of the uh, use of eminent domain, and to push for non-industrial scale renewable energy systems. Thanks also to Catering by Sid, where owner Sid Cohn has been uh, has been operating an amazing business that uh, that uh, provides catering services that are every single one of them are custom made. A lot of our ingredients come from local source, sources as well. Thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at great prices with very friendly, helpful service at Cinco de Mayo Restaurant. Okay, so let's kick off the conversation here. Uh, we had um, uh, Joel Curtinitis on the show uh, a couple weeks ago. And Joel raised some concerns about uh, conflicting data within climate. And I more recently received a, uh, an email from one of my, uh, my allies in, in the uh, war to keep eminent domain away from being used for private companies, who, um, even though we have similar, you know, we're on the same page on that, there were, uh, you know, she's not on the same page when it comes to climate change, and sent me a, a clip from... The uh, Heritage Foundation, which... Uh, the Heartland Institute. Oh, sorry, the Heartland Institute, yeah. 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 Well, um, a well-known which, front organization for oil and gas oh, interests gosh, in the they're, United they're, States. They're entirely, not entirely, but uh, but significantly funded by the Koch brothers, by ExxonMobil, by other oil and gas interests, and... Uh, and you just don't you just don't get credible commentary or research when you are bought and paid for by an industry that has a lot to lose by us moving away from a fossil fuel based economy. I believe we have Gene Tackley on the phone. Gene is the is a professor of climate science at Iowa State University, and uh, we wanted to talk about we wanted to address some of the concerns that are still raised that unfortunately still convince some people that climate change is not happening, that it's not caused by human activity. Uh, Gene, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, welcome to the show. And uh, again, 
trying to address some of the concerns that people have raised about um, about uh, con- what, what appears to be conflicting data. You have folks who are saying, well, sea ice, sea ice is way down. Others are saying that, well, sea ice being way down is not uncommon. There's one clip I, I saw recently from the, uh, the, the Heartland Institute Heartland that showed that uh, back in 1922, there was lots of concerns about sea ice declining. So what do you, what do you say to people who... Tell it to the Titanic. Tell it to the Titanic. <laughs> well, they were in the wrong part of the uh, Atlantic, I guess. And so, what do you say to people who? Um, what do you say to people who? Uh, who believe that that, uh, that the data on sea ice is conflicting? That it is it is not declining, and that is one indicator that climate change is either not happening or is not anthropogenic. Sure, uh, climate change. Uh, uh, sea ice is a, is a uh, useful metric to look at for for uh, looking at the uh, influence of climate change, but it's not uh, a clear indicator in some cases because we have to distinguish between uh, ice surface or the surface area of ice and the volume of ice uh, because the, the most useful metric is really how much, what's the volume of ice that we're losing because that's really the important thing. You can, for a given, amount, a given volume of ice, of course, it depends on how it's, uh, how it's arranged on the Earth's surface. Floating ice is very thin, and uh, so it's subject to other factors such as wind as it, it's blown around in the Arctic uh, Ocean. It can be uh, uh, have a larger or less extent just because of the wind and not due to uh, any melting or, or freezing. So you have to, as with any indicator, you have to understand its, its uh, strengths and its weaknesses as an indicator of climate change. So there have been some, uh, uh, of course, the uh, area of sea ice has been declining, but uh, sometimes that goes through a pause. Uh, however, the volume of ice uh, globally has been declining very dramatically, and, and uh, there have been recent reports on, on uh, that it's been declining more uh, than we had previously thought. So uh, we have to look at uh, the, uh, what the indicator uh, we're considering and really how reliable it is under all different kinds of conditions. Yeah, so and the, the you know another concern that has been raised is the uh, the alleged discrepancy between satellite data and ground data not just relevant to ice but relevant to uh, a lot of different climate indicators uh, uh, and what, what do you what do you have to say about that that, that that alleged discrepancy between satellite and ground data yeah good question the uh Satellites, of course, are very useful because it gives us global coverage, and it gives us coverage not only over land and ice, but over the oceans, which is critically important. And it's uh, it's quite uh, quite reliable, but again, with any any measurement system, it has its limitations. So, for instance, satellites; these are either low or medium orbit Earth satellites that are. Uh, orbiting the Earth, they will go over a particular location twice a day. So they take measurements over Iowa twice a day, and uh, these are uh, the ones that I've looked at. Uh, I think it's eleven about eleven o'clock in the morning and and eleven o'clock at night, or something like that. So it takes two glimpses of the day during the diurnal cycle. Well, uh, you, so then you have to figure out well how does that represent the whole cycle of temperature during the day. Uh, do I take the average of those two? Well, that doesn't get the the heating period of the day of of three, four o'clock in the afternoon. So I've got to some figure out some way to manage that. So 
uh, satellites are, are very, very useful and our go-to uh, measurement system, for, especially over the oceans, where there's less of a diurnal variation. But over land, it, is, it could, could be more problematic because of the, of the only twice daily uh, measurements and, uh, and the variation, the fact that it averages over a large area. Maybe it assigns one temperature measurement to all of uh, Polk County, for instance, or Story and Polk together, maybe even. So within that, there's a lot of variation. So there's there's always room for improvement and for refinement in our um, reconciliation between surface and satellite temperatures. So it's just one of the things that we, we deal with, and um, uh, it'll continue to be with us. Oh, Professor Charles Goldman. Um which parameters are most vital to assess uh, climate change in your mind in terms of the modeling? Because, you know, a lot of the reporting and a lot of the political uh, advocacy is very reductive. It's always, well, this one parameter says. And we know that these models are probabilistic models that are extremely complex. Um, when you're looking at climate change models, what do you in particular find to be the most uh, important uh, parameters in those models? When we look at uh, the physics, and this is what we have to look at, because the physics, we, we the laws of physics are, are, are immutable. Are, are immutable, and that's what we look for. And so, we we push the models to include as much physics as we possibly can. And when we get down to uh, very very near the ground and the lowest. Uh, few centimeters of the ground, the temperature changes rapidly, and so some of our physical models don't capture the variability and so on. So then we have to go to statistical models to fill in the final gaps. But uh, our models are always pushing to add more physics and eliminate more of the statistical representation that we use to represent uh, situations where we where the physics are unclear. So, uh, but fundamentally... Uh, it's a big heat exchange problem. In other words, the, the, the Earth is a, is a gigantic thermodynamic engine, and it gets heat put in from the sun, and it processes that heat. It makes our climate go. It moves heat, uh, the ocean, it warms the oceans. The oceans move heat around. It melts ice. It, it creates ice, all these processes, and then it expels heat back to outer space. So we have a bathtub kind of thing, water coming in, water going out, mm. uh, energy coming in, energy coming out. So it really, um, and that's, that's, a, that's the first law of thermodynamics. That's a, that's a core of, of uh, physical processes. So uh, we, we look at, we use that as much as we can. So we really look at where the heat goes. And economics and polit politics, we look at where the money goes. But in climate science, we look at where the heat goes. Well, maybe, maybe in climate science, we should also also be looking at where the money goes. So, well, you know, maybe look, so. at the, look at the uh, look at the the, the Heartland Institute. Uh, and here's here's one of the sources that are cited by people who are who are still denying the anthropogenic connection to climate change. And if you look at the uh, the funding that this uh, this institute gets, it's uh, it is so clearly biased uh, in favor of of, of, of uh, the oil industry's, um, you know, agenda. Mm -hmm. Well, what, what, what do you find in your classes that you're teaching at Iowa State? That, you know, because you're interfacing with a generational group that is much more willing to accept that climate change is occurring. But do you still find some of these attitudes of denial even there? Um, there are a lot of students who are just forming 
their viewpoints on this because uh, maybe that's been sort of tomorrow's issue and they've got more things on their minds as young people do and they've got well that's the reason for them not to go to college at 18 <laughs> <laughs> so uh, but but they're they're thoughtful and they're willing uh, f- from what i've seen they're they're willing to accept the science which is which is really, really important. And they have to understand how science works and that uh, we, we work, it's not an advocacy system where we just pick and choose certain facts to create a, a scenario. Uh, in science, you look at all the facts and you, you make hypotheses and then you challenge these hypotheses with a variety of different measurements. And sometimes, and this is good, we find surprises. Uh, because without surprises, we're not going to make progress. So uh, in some cases, uh, skeptics have been helpful in pointing out uh, uh, areas where we need more research or where we need better interpretation, new interpretation of old data. And I think this has been true with you know, the satellite versus ground measurements, the satellite versus radiosan measurements. Uh, it's been very helpful to learn why there's been discrepancies, and, and uh, that's, how, that's how science works, that we continue to refine our hypotheses. Uh, Gene, can you stick around for, uh, we can take a short uh, two-minute break or so, and I want to come back to this conversation, if you can stick with us for a little bit longer. Sure, that'd okay. be good. Great. Folks, uh, you're listening to The Fallon Forum. Dr. Charles Goldman hosting with me today. And on the phone, uh, Iowa State University uh, climate uh, scientist and professor Gene Tackley. We'll be back in a minute on The Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. You can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Bold Iowa was launched in 2016 to fight the Dakota Access Pipeline 
and continues to support the landowners who filed lawsuits against the abuse of eminent domain to build that pipeline. Bold Iowa's mission is to build rural-urban coalitions to fight climate change, prevent the abuse of eminent domain, protect Iowa's soil, air, and water, and support non-industrial renewable energy systems. For more information, visit boldiowa.com, not.org.com. That's boldiowa.com. To the Fallon Forum, that's uh, Brother Trucker, and we're here in the second segment of the program, continuing our conversation with uh, Gene Tackley. Uh, Gene, uh, thanks for sticking around with us here. We appreciate your uh, perspective on the uh, climate crisis. Sure. Now, um, one concern that's uh, occasionally raised is uh, is how does the the uh, reduced solar activity um, play into the science to scientists' climate models? sun has a variety of, of uh, processes that go through cycles on, on various scales, and so uh, some of these have been known for centuries, uh, the sunspot cycles, for instance, and this is a change in output of the sun. It goes through other cycles, of, of uh, some of which aren't really very well quantified, but uh, from if you look at the, at the human uh, time scale and look at what we know about, uh, say, uh, global average surface temperatures from 1880 to the present, at 140 years or so of, of measurements, we can see some uh, examples of solar activity. Uh, however, the we're in an era now uh, that the cycles that we're seeing, the, the sunspot cycles and so on, that the changes in a, to our climate from sunspot cycles are far lower than the changes attributable to human activity. So we're, we're seeing that, that uh, on these scales, um, sunspot cycles are, are contributing only a small amount. So they come and go, and uh, the output is reduced during periods and, and increased at others, but it's not a major factor in the trajectory of our, of our climate. So what? What? All right. To so those who um, are still, I, I don't know many people who say that climate change isn't happening, but but uh, there's still some who feel that it's not uh, caused by human activity, and thus that we don't really have any 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 responsibility or anything we can do about it. So what? What do you? What are the uh, you know top two or what's the top three uh, um, factors that you can? you can uh, point to that indicate that we are indeed in an anthropogenic climate change mode that's pretty serious with the climate models we can we can apply those to to look at uh, uh, how the earth uh, temperature and how the earth heat exchange processes has evolved over on lots of different time scales going back a million years even where we have uh, paleoclimate records of of uh, what the vegetation looked at but we also know from the laws of uh, space physics about the orbit of the earth around the sun and and uh, and the uh, rotation of the Earth and so on, wobbling of the Earth on its axis, and we put all those in, and we can we can then uh, simulate and and reconstruct the kinds of climates that are actually we where where we have paleoclimate evidence. So we've been able to 
calibrate our climate models very well on a wide range of, of different processes going back a million years or more uh, in the Earth's climate. So when we use these to project forward, as we do, uh, we can either include or not include the effect of increases in methane and carbon dioxide and the, and the other greenhouse gases. When we do that, we find that the climate would have pretty much followed the 20th century average on out for the next uh, two or three centuries. Uh, would have cooled a bit and warmed a bit, but uh, certainly it's what we're seeing now is way beyond what the, the models predict if we had not put carbon dioxide. So in how, how come there are scientists or at least alleged scientists, for example, who, who, uh, represent, who work with the Heartland Institute, for example, who still argue against that there, who say, no, this is just a normal cycle, human beings aren't causing it, we have nothing to worry about. How, how come those scientists even exist with such strong evidence? Well, they don't, they don't uh, propose any cycle that we haven't included. Uh, so uh, the question is, well, what, what have we overlooked? And we're, I mean, that's not just a, a cynical question. That's a, that's a scientific curiosity. We, we want to know what it is that we've overlooked, but nobody is pointing to anything that uh, has, uh, is, uh, then uh, could explain these. Uh, so that's that's the issue. So and then the uh, contention is, well, it's just a model, and models uh, are are wrong. Well, it's it's true that models are imperfect. And in fact, George Box, who was a famous uh, statistician, once made the statement that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. <laughs> and uh, it's that's very, very true. That's one of the things that we have all our PhD students in meteorology address when they report their, their results, particularly if they're using models. Um, why, how are your models wrong, and, and why are they useful? Uh, and I point to the... Uh, uh, laws of aerodynamics, for instance, that govern our atmosphere, the motions of the atmosphere. Uh, using those laws, uh, uh, aerodynamicists could not explain the flight of a bumblebee until 1996. Yet we use those same laws of aerodynamics to build and fly comfortably in airplanes. So if you if you say that, and so the laws of aerodynamics, if you know, if you look at it in that sense, well, they're still they were still wrong until 1996. But um, you know, they they were useful in designing and building airplanes. So we have to look at what is wrong and what needs to be improved. And the our models of the atmosphere are are based on the laws of aerodynamics for the movement and the laws of thermodynamics for the heat exchange. So these. If we if we don't believe these models, then we better not fly in airplanes or live <laughs> near power plants right. because uh, they could blow up, and because we don't know, maybe they're wrong about building nuclear so, power plants. But so, I, I think most of the denial has been driven by the fact that they'll the deniers will say, "Well, the model predicted this, and it didn't happen," mm -hmm. and you know, which is of course not a scientifically valid critique if it isn't accompanied by, as you said. Show me where the model, not that it failed, but why did it fail? Yeah, and we can, in many cases, we can uh, we can model not only the uh, a single outcome, but a range of outcomes. And this is you're familiar. Everybody's familiar with this when we see the hurricane landfall. 
cone of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you see that, you know, eight, six, eight days out, there will be a, a hurricane off uh, out in the Caribbean someplace, and, and the hurricane forecasters will have a cone of uncertainty. And it may cover the whole coastal area of Florida uh, in the early days. And then as we get closer, it gets refined, and finally they can get it within... Uh, you know, 50 miles or so about where the where the eye is going to center. So there is always uncertainty. So one of the things we model is not the the mean or the, our projected average landfall, but also how well do we know that? And so that's the other thing that moving forward uh, with the climate system, we we project that there's going to be a range of outcomes. By the end of the 21st century, we'll be from about one and a half to maybe six degrees uh, Celsius warmer than the present. But there is no model. There's no model that shows that the global climate will cool uh, by the end of the 20th. Gene, we've got to take a break here. And um, I want to ask you one more question. Based on that, um, again, we have the, uh, the Iowa, sorry, the International Panel on Climate Change saying, hey, folks, we've got 12 years to figure this out or else. How serious a warning is that? How, how, how anxious do we have to be? about that warning that's a a serious uh statement and it it uh, uh i think is uh, should it, uh, engender a, a real serious search for ways that uh, we as as nations as individuals can really get at and address the problem uh, on the basis of both conservation, reducing our need, uh, particularly for fossil fuels, but also looking for disruptive technologies that will um, ba- and breakthroughs on batteries, for instance, and and uh, uh, different technologies that will allow us to really uh, expand the use of renewable energies. All right, hey, uh, Gene, thanks so much for joining us, folks. We've been talking with uh, Gene. Tackley, a professor of climate science at Iowa State University. Uh, thanks again so much for taking the time to visit with us. Thanks for inviting me. And when we come back from a break here, folks, uh, uh, Jonathan Jennings with the uh, with Health and Harmony is going to join us to talk about the uh, the concerns about the what's that's being referred to as the sixth mass extinction and the role that zoos might play in helping to um, at least uh, keep some of those creatures uh, alive through the oncoming uh, challenges of climate change. We'll be back in a couple minutes, folks, on the Fallon Forum. That's Brother Trucker, folks. Uh, welcome back to the Fallon Farm. Uh, Andy Fleming, one of my favorite local musicians, uh, the singer of that tune, uh, composer of that tune, uh, Downtown. And, Charles, I won't tell uh, Andy Fleming that you thought he sounded like me because uh, he would be very offended, and I don't blame him. Well, I, I thought you were trying to be like a triple threat radio host. Oh. I, you know, when, when, I am. When the, our previous call was talking about the zone of uncertainty, I, I was trying to think of an illustrative example, and I thought maybe it would be like, you know, when you go out to the car in the morning and you turn the uh, ignition on the Edmobile, that's a zone of uncertainty. Uh, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's an emphatic, uh, yes. When you have a 1997 a Subaru with 207,000 miles, everything's uncertain. <laughs> hey, uh, something else that's uncertain is the uh, the status of um, most species on this planet. Uh, we are, we're seeing what many are calling the uh, sixth great extinction, and there's nothing great about it except that it's huge. And uh, joining us to talk about that is 
Jonathan Jennings. He's with uh, Health and Harmony. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Good morning, Ed and Dr. Goldman. Thanks so much for having Health and Harmony. Sure. Hey, so um, you uh, you talked in a recent editorial about the about species extinction, uh, saying that. Uh, it's uh, it's it's an invisible killer posing as great a threat to humanity as climate change, but um, isn't climate change what's really causing species extinction? Well, it's a good question, Ed, and really there there are four major causes of extinction that are commonly cited, and these are habitat loss, pollution, over harvesting, and invasive species. And climate change now is becoming the fifth ma- major cause of extinction. And, of course, each of these causes is intensified by human population growth and by our increasing per capita consumption of resources. You know, when humans expand into new territories, we tend not to blend very well into the natural environment. We clear-cut forests, we lay pavement and build massive buildings, and unsurprisingly, few species of plants and animals have evolved to live on highways or in office buildings or sewers. Yeah, mostly, and, mostly what we see out there on highways is roadkill. <laughs> that's right, that's right. And what's more, you know, in order to feed ourselves, uh, the human population has grown so large, we're converting roughly 40% of the Earth's fertile land surface into farms uh, to feed people mainly corn, rice, and wheat. But this cropland is generally not very rich in the food plants that are suitable for birds, bees, butterflies, and other vital insect species. So their populations are dwindling to, and disappearing. And so from the viewpoint of most of Earth's wildlife, the farm race that we're in to feed ourselves is also a major source of habitat destruction. Now, now one thing I heard uh, heard a couple of years ago is that we were losing, uh, like, like was it 100 species every day? Is that possible? Do I have that number right? Yeah, you know, it's something like that. Um, it's it's a, a largely accelerated rate of species extinction compared to the geological record. And, you know civilization as we know it really depends on a diversity of plants and animals uh, for crop pollination, food from land and sea, for our medicines, for maintenance of a, of a livable temperature. So that's why I say that species extinction poses a threat to humanity because simply put, nature's services supply us humans with our basic needs for food, water, oxygen, shelter, and medicines. We owe our existence to this web of life and we depend on it for our survival. Yeah, it's interesting that you include uh, biodiversity in plants as part of the criticality of this issue. You know, I think most people, uh, when they think of extinctions, well, first of all, they think of the dinosaurs and, you know, the the supposed asteroid theory as the cause of the extinction. But, you know, there's now even new evidence there that it may have been a much slower ecological change that actually doomed the dinosaurs. Um, And... If we lose plant diversity, that may be even more important than what we always often think about, which is the higher level mammals is the only thing that, you know, you see like, you know, save the snow leopard and these sorts of things. And it's not that those aren't uh, good goals, but uh, going to monoculture and destroying uh, biodiversity outside of the animals is also critical. Yeah. Uh, A hero of mine, E.O. Wilson, a famous biologist, has said that this planet belongs to the ants. Yeah. And when you look at, I thought, I thought it belonged to the cockroaches. Well, soon, soon enough, we'll see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you, uh, you, you do, you work in collaboration with zoos. That's right. right. And my, uh, my, my memory of zoos as a kid 
uh, is they, they were they were horrible, miserable places. Uh, I remember seeing an elephant chained to a, a stone wall. Uh, I remember seeing a, a, a black panther that looked so uh, so. so it, it looked like it had lost its mind. It was so uh, such a small. Uh, you know, an inappropriate cage. I remember seeing lots of things like that as a kid. But my impression is, I haven't been to a zoo in a while. My kids are grown. <laughs> but my impression is that uh, zoos have, in ch- have changed quite a bit. And and you see them not only as having evolved to being more humane, but as also being uh, repositories where we can hopefully preserve some of these species that are uh, at risk of extinction. Yeah, that's right. Um Certain zoos in the country are strategic partners of Health and Harmony. Um, you know, I remember the same thing, Ed, as a child seeing animals in zoos kept in unacceptable conditions as well as being exploited in unmanaged breeding programs. And remember, baby animals were used as attractions to drive zoo attendants. And I think, you know, sadly, these types of facilities still exist. I want to point out Health and Harmony only partners with zoos that are certified by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, so AZA-accredited zoos. There are only 233 AZA zoos nationally, and this is less than 10% of the 2,800 zoos that are licensed by the USDA in the United States. So, you know, Ed, accreditation really matters. Um, AZA-accredited zoos meet rigorous standards for animal welfare and for conservation, why do, why do we even allow zoos that don't? Well, that, that's a good question, and, and, and I don't have an answer for that. You know, I think, Ed, the most important point here is, is this. We know from recent United Nations reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that we have about 12 years or until 2030 to cut global carbon pollution by 45%. Now, that's going to keep us within pre-industrial temperature levels of, of, of 1.5 degrees Celsius. And, and staying within this, these temperature ranges, it requires immediate, decisive, and innovative action from us all. It requires new and innovative partnerships, right. like the ones that Health and Harmony is forging with these AZA zoos, like the ones we're forging with international universities and corporations. These collaborations are going to be key. We've got to break the silos that are currently constraining our efforts to protect forests, conserve species, and mitigate global warming. When you do, um, you know, interface with these these AZA uh, certified zoos, what in particular does Health and Harmony want to um, have these zoos exemplify? You know, what 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 is the partnership really focused on? Yeah, the key for us at Health and Harmony is that zoo guests learn the the fundamental reality that human development and rainforest conservation are one and the same. So Health and Harmony merges human development and, and the conservation uh, of rainforest ecosystems. And in, so, in, in doing that, not only do we reverse poverty, not only do we in, improve human health and well-being and ecosystem integrity and protect, you know, thousands of acres of rainforest, but we also protect habitat for charismatic animals, the animals that your kids and I went to zoos to see. So what we're hoping is that the zoo guests will understand that their behavior, human behavior, is at the center of the preservation of rainforests globally. And that's the key educational point we want to make. And we make it by 
allowing zoos to experience our programs in Borneo, but also allowing zoos to educate our youth, our Indonesian youth and our children on topics from conservation, species extinction, uh, as well as hygiene. So it's really an exchange of expertise here in the hopes of, of driving ultimately planetary health. Jonathan, I really want to take a I want to thank you for taking some time to join us. Uh, Jonathan Jennings, folks, with uh, with uh, Health and Harmony, he's the executive director of that group and doing some important work. Uh, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. And if folks want to learn more about your work, get in touch with you. Where do they go? Yes, thanks, Ed. If people are interested in learning more about the work of Health and Harmony, please visit our website, healthandharmony.org. Uh, we have several TED Talks. We have a lot of information there, and I would welcome any questions at info at healthandharmony.org. All right. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. All right, folks, so uh, we've spent the first three segments of this program talking about life and death matters that affect the survival of our species and many other species. We're going to totally squander the final segment of the show by talking with Dr. Goldman, Charles's brother, uh, about the Super Bowl. Here we go, folks, back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Sid's Catering is owned by Sid Cohn, whose culinary career spans an eclectic variety of cities, kitchens, dishes, and awards. Sid got her first taste of the food and hospitality industry as a youngster growing up in scenic northeast Iowa, where her family operated a vacation home that catered to an international clientele. Every one of Sid's catering arrangements is custom-made, and much of the food she uses comes from local sources, with vegan, vegetarian, and gluten-free options. Sid will provide whatever you need. That's Catering by Sid, spelled C-Y-D. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188.
Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon here with you. Before we delve into another life and death uh, conversation, I want to take a second to thank uh, some of our other business partners again, Gateway Marketing Cafe, our anchor sponsor, located at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper seven days a week. Uh, thanks also to Community CPA. This is a last tax season. So give you inside Community CPA a shout for your tax and accounting needs. That's Community CPA. Uh, thanks also to Hawk Restaurant on East 5th and Walnut, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. And thanks to Sargent's Garage, located at 6th and College. Uh, Sargent's gives you a fair price and a great diagnosis every single time. And thanks also to Diversity Insurance, located at 1541 East Grand in Des Moines. All your insurance needs under one roof. No appointment needed. That's Diversity Insurance at 1541 East Grand. Okay, so we've been talking about life and death stuff. Uh, climate change, the e, uh, the IPCC report, giving us 12 years to figure this out. Um, how to dialogue with those who are still in denial about what's going on. Uh, what do we do about all the other species? By the way, I looked it up, by the way. 150 to 200 species a day are, are, are going extinct because of climate change and other human activity. So, um, Are we talking... Fauna also? I'm sorry, flora also? Flora plant? and fauna, okay. yes. Got yeah. it. So that's a lot of critters and plants. Mm -hmm. But um, so every once in a while, you just need to say, okay, this is overwhelming. Let's talk about football. Um, <laughs> and with us on the phone, Dr. Stephen Goldman, who is perhaps the most fanatic Patriots fan that I personally know, except for some family members out in Massachusetts. <laughs> Stephen, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hi, Ben. Yeah. It's good to be here as always. Well, Steve was sitting at home saying, let's let's get to something important. Tom Brady. <laughs> yeah. We're still talking about climate change and extinction. Right. Let's talk about Tom Brady. So, yeah, I mean, here's Brady, 41 years old, going up against a quarterback who was in diapers when Brady won his first Super Bowl. This, this should be an interesting experience from a number of levels. Uh, yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things. And... Um, let me clarify, I'm more of a Tom Brady fan, as you know, than a straightforward Patriots fan. Um, because you have to always put Belichick in there. Um, <laughs> um, I, I do want to point out something. All seriousness, we're watching something historic. And those of us of a certain age who remember the greatest team sports player in American history, the greatest winner, was Bill Russell. Uh, Russell won 11 championships out of 13 uh, with, finals. He never lost a deciding game. And we're watching a guy who I think is on that level. That's how good I think Brady is. Well, and I think people are really waking up to that. So uh, hopefully they'll wake up to climate change too, Walter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. But so uh, yeah. so what what happens if Brady retires? Will you move on from being a uh, being a Pats fan, or or going to move on? From I'm going to move on from being a football fan. I mean, yeah. Charles and I have talked about this. Um, I had a similar epiphany when I watched one of the greatest prize fights ever was the last one I watched was when Ali fought... Um, Foreman. Uh, uh, no. Joe Frazier. No. Right, right, right. No, yeah. when, he fought the, when he fought against Ken Norton, oh, which a lot okay. of people forget. Like us. Which was, a, which was an amazing <laughs> fight. No, really, seriously. 15 rounds, it was, incredible. it was an incredible fight. My dad and I watched it. And it was the last fight we ever watched because of what happened to Ali and um, the toll. It's hard to watch football now. It's got a gladiatorial aspect. Look at, look at Gronk. He's 29. Yeah, he's a mess. He's a total mess. 
And I'm afraid this may be literally the last time we'll see Rob Gronkowski play football. Yeah, and uh, you have to wonder, uh, how, many, how many folks make it through an NFL career of any length at all in one piece uh, where, well, where their life is not going to be compromised? Well, you know, there was a great, there was a great um, study done several years ago. I'm sure you can find it on the web. Sports Illustrated uh, tracked down all the members of uh, the Cincinnati Bengals team, uh, the ones that um, uh, Boomer Siason led. And not the Super Bowl team, but they tracked down one of the playoff teams. And, you know, Ed, it was fascinating because the range was tremendous. Um, Esiason was never injured. And people forget Esiason was 6'5", 240 in those days. That was unheard of. I mean, he was built like the he was like Ben Roethlisberger before there was Roethlisberger. <laughs> and Esiason has had very little in relation to that. Other members of his team are crippled. There are people who have died, uh, obviously associated uh, with CT and other things. A couple of people have vanished, so it's all over the place. The thing, the thing with with Gronk, there there is a precedent with Gronk, a, a, a real direct line. The greatest all-around tight end I ever saw before Gronk was Dave Casper, the ghost, from Oakland and, and Houston. He lasted nine years. I believe this is Gronk's ninth year. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why you're seeing this with Gronk is that Gronk, like Casper, is one of the greatest all-around tight ends. That uh, is, they're great, how, how, how is, they're, how is, they're great blockers. How has Brady, Brady managed to have managed to avoid injury? To the, I mean, not not entirely, of course, but compared to uh, a lot of folks who've been involved with a uh, football career for any length of time, he's he's done fairly well. Yeah, you know, he actually well, I, said something very ill-considered, Brady, about he he prepares for the trauma of being hit. Well, but that got misinterpreted. He wasn't talking about head hits, Charles. He was mm. talking about body hits. And I think that was taken out of context. I mean, obviously, the thing he had with his training, you know, with Guerrero, mm -hmm. was more questionable about a product that I believe they pulled. Uh, I mean, and it's a great question. He's, he's in an amazing shape. I mean, he's an amazing athlete. And if you take a look at Brady now versus when he came in, he's 30 pounds heavier. Um, he's also, his arm is better than it was when he came in. If you take a look at any of the films, he's an absolute fanatic. I mean, he goes to bed at 9 o'clock. And he's, he a, trains, he's, a, he's, he a trains, he's a vegan, right? Yeah, I mean, he's completely I mean, changed his diet. How is that? Well, um, but this is, <laughs> well, that and he goes to bed at 9 o'clock with Giselle there. <laughs> and, That's not um, so crazy. Uh, but he's also, but his longevity is remarkable. Don't forget the only games he's ever missed other than the four-game suspension, was when he had, you know, when he had the knee injury at the beginning of the 2008 season. Mm -hmm. He hasn't missed a game since. Yeah. Well, that which is, a which is, of course, the season that supposedly proves it's Belichick's system, not Brady. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, when they make the playoffs. <laughs> yeah, they didn't beat a team with a winning record, yeah. So, I, his, I think it's a combination. Brady's Plus, presence I mean, was there. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I mean, but the rules have changed. I mean, look, Drew Brees is 40, and he's still going strong. Um, Big Ben, who surprised me that he's still well, but Breeze, Breeze, I think of, of the three of them is is the one who's clearly lost the most arm strength. Yes, and yes, I, I would agree not with to that. the level of old Noodle Arm. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, to, to be fair, one of my least least clutch quarterbacks uh, in history. Uh, don't forget, Manning had a terrible neck injury, right? And he had no arm left, right? Brady's got a tremendous arm. Okay, I well, mean, he just, so which Stephen, also makes a difference. So, one question is: 
how, how do you take the criticism that the Patriots have had the easiest path to the Super Bowl of any of these dynasty teams? And you got 45 seconds to answer right. that, then we've got to move on for heartbreak. Shit, that's how much time I get. Um, <laughs> well, actually, the record of the AFL e, the, the AFC East is not that bad compared to the rest of the AFC. And um, uh, look at look at the the Colts in their great years. Who would they have against them in relation to that? Yes, they've had the bye for the most part. Yes, they've had to have two games, but you still got to beat good teams. And um, I think this last game was a tremendous validation because they beat what I think was the best team in football, and they beat them in Kansas City. So, quick question now on the last twenty seconds: Who's going to win the Super Bowl on Sunday? You know, I don't. I don't. Bet against Tom Brady. Yeah, Charles. Um, Charles. The usual will be the Patriots by three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. because I, I uh, because I don't trust Belichick's defense. All right. When okay. Brady gets relieved. Doctor Steve, <laughs> thanks for joining us here on the Fallon Forum. Thanks, folks. Have a great week. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon and Charles Goldman with you here broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa. You know, uh, another climate issue that doesn't get a lot of attention is coal ash. Right. And, and, you know, it's a problem nationwide. But interestingly, in Iowa, we have pretty much more coal ash stockpiled here than I think any, any state west of the Mississippi River, I believe. Um, pretty much. I mean, it's it's surprising when you look out. Uh, once you get across the Mississippi, uh, there's not a lot of exposure to coal ash. Uh, to some degree, because of other generation, other electric generation being used, and uh, also um, a much more rigid state regulatory process. In fact, Iowa has no regulatory process relative to coal ash. None at all. None at all. Aren't there federal standards that have to be recognized? Well, and that's the big issue, which is that the federal standards, surprise, surprise, are being uh, weakened because of the uh, no, not by fealty, fealty to the coal industry that is the Donald Trump administration. So what, what, what exactly? What, what, um, let's start with the standards that have existed and, what, and then what's being changed. Well, the standards that have existed uh, were promulgated in 2015 by uh, the Obama administration, and it it uh, related to um, maintenance of these of these plants, a, a move toward uh, using landfill rather than ponds for storing the coal ash, and, um, and why is requiring it, why is that, mitigation why, plans. Why is that an improvement? Why why is it better to store the coal ash on land than than in a pond? Well, the problem with the ponds is that it, they have a noticeable tendency to leak, particularly also they oftentimes are dam ponds where the dams are just earthen dams and so they they fail and then they or they get uh overtopped by massive rain and flooding as we saw in North Carolina. Right, that happened there what a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So um you know and if if you like your groundwater with mercury uh in it and selenium and arsenic some of my uh, favorite This is a, this yeah. is for you. So yeah. I think it's see this is this is one of the interesting things and we'll get back to specifically the issue in Iowa. Um, we never talk about the side effect of production of, as being part of the coal equation, right? So we're gonna we're we're supply we're supporting forty thousand jobs nationwide. 
which then leads to billions of dollars of mitigation in terms of what to do with the waste from coal-burning plants. And remember that you know one of, the, one of the knocks against nuclear is what do you do with the waste from those plants? And they, obviously there are huge problems with the control rods that come out of those plants. But you also have a, a product, a residue from coal burning, which is in, in many ways much more directly toxic to people who live around these plants and to us in general. It puts mercury in the air, put, it kills people by worsening their lung disease. Um, and these costs are never factored in as to how expensive coal generation actually is, no matter how cheap coal may be. Um, whereas when you look at solar and you look at wind, uh, the mitigation costs for those are negligible. So all the cost is up front in the generation of the, in the, in the putting up of the uh, windmills or the panels and then maintaining them. Uh, so that renewable energy is overpriced in the minds of the public mm. because there's no mitigation, whereas the coal looks cheaper or natural gas looks cheaper. Um, when particularly cold, there's huge mitigation well, there's, costs. We're so socializing the costs. Right. Case. We always so socialize what, well, the what costs. Well, what exactly has the uh, Trump administration done to weaken the Obama-era administration uh, regulations regarding uh, coal ash? Um, they are simply not enforcing them. Uh, they're not... They, how, how, how do they get away without, the, without a lawsuit? Well, there are multiple lawsuits out oh, there. There are, okay. There are multiple lawsuits out there. But, um, it, you know, again, it's part of their plan to revive this industry of limited employment, which um, is, is part and parcel of, of, t of what they've done to the clean air plant. So uh, when you, you've got a coal mine, uh, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a mine, maybe it's a mountaintop re removal operation. Mm -hmm. uh, at any rate, no matter what kind of facility you've got, you've got coal ash that comes out of that. That's correct. And uh, does it all, but it doesn't, it, it, it isn't all localized. Sometimes it's moved, correct? Well, Moving coal itself is a problem. Yeah, and moving you, you, coal, but moving coal yeah. ash—that's that, that, that happens as well, right? That's correct. So why would it, why would any community want somebody to bring in a pile of coal ash? <laughs> no, they, well, no community did. No, okay. no community wants it. I mean, look look at the situation in uh, Iowa. Iowa is the thirty-sixth out of fifty state in terms of producing coal ash. It has uh, nine sites that are contaminated. There's only 17, I'm sorry, there's only 13 electrical generating coal plants in Iowa. And nine of them are contaminated. And nine of them have sites that are contaminated. And who measures that? Who, who determines that, that they're contaminated? Uh, actually, the utilities themselves do it. Really? Yeah. So they're, they're self-regulated. They are, to some degree, self-regulated. And, and, and they're still, nine of the 13 are still saying, hey, we're, we're that, toxic. That's correct. And Wow. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's pretty problematic. So and it's the, corporate honesty. Just, yeah, just, just to give you some idea of, 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 you know, like a neighboring state, like Nebraska, has only one contaminated site. Minnesota has two. Minnesota's 26th in coal ash generation, so more than we do. They have 17 plants, and yet they only have two sites that are contaminated. So why are nine of Iowa's 13 sites a problem? What, what's, what's going wrong here? Well, what's going wrong is that we have no regulation by the state. And actually, that's been the big move on the part of the Trump administration, which is to say that we need, as, they, as we always say, flexibility in terms of regulating coal ash. And what flexibility means is to kick it back to the states, where, of course, 
we are much more prone to see lobbying activity yeah. and other things influence the outcome. But the federal government only wants to kick something back to the states when it um, when it, it well the federal government under Donald Trump's you know watch only wants to kick it back to the states when it's uh, not in the best interest of of, of the of industry to keep it at the federal level. Right, right, and that's what that's exactly what's yeah. going on here. I mean, look look at the situation in Iowa. There's 43 ponds at 13 plants. The average age of these ponds is 50 years old. Some of them are as old as 75 years old. Hmm. A number of them are unlined or just lined by clay. What do you expect is going to happen to those plants? And, you know, so the first thing we need to do is, is acknowledge the downstream health issues associated with use of coal for electrical generation. Um, including, as we just started to talk about, the fact that you take coal from eastern sites and put it in, in, in railroad cars and drag it across to the West Coast to be sold to China. And along the way, you're exposing everyone to the soot from the coal itself. And then you, you now have a situation with mercury-laden, selenium, cadmium-laden material sitting in a pond in a pond that was built 50 to 75 years ago. Yeah, this is not a recipe for this is a uh, recipe for environmental protection. Absolutely yeah. not a recipe yeah. for disaster. Yeah, but again, <clears throat> you make a good point, which is that we not only socialize the mitigation cost, we make invisible in many ways the the real risk that these plants. How so? Well, because we put them out in places where no one sees them, except for the people, the rural communities that are you know cheek to jowl with these plants. And they're the ones who bear the greatest risk. Has there been any, and again, you're a doctor, maybe you know about this, has there been any research to show that there's a higher risk of um, cancer or other ailments for folks who live near these coal ash plants, um, coal ash sites? No, and you know, part of the problem with any of that research is going to be that access to health care, uh, socioeconomic differences in rural communities are already going to predict for many of those things are going to be increased. So it's very hard to sign up, go with a one-factor study. Um, but we, we know for sure that mercury is a neurotoxin, which means it's clearly harmful to, to particularly developing children's brains. Mm. We know in, you know in other situations that uh, cadmium and selenium are associated with increased uh, cancer risks. So there'd be no reason to expect if it gets in your groundwater and you're drinking out of a well um, – that you're not exposed to excess amounts of these heavy metals that are toxic. Now, I don't, I don't know industry's response, but one of my guesses would be they say, well, the stuff just stays on site. It doesn't travel. Well, no, actually, the industries, because of, of previous actions by the uh, EPA under Obama, have actually been fairly uh, transparent. But the problem now is, what is the mitigation for groundwater contamination? And that has been left to the industry itself. And the irony is that many of these plants are completely inefficient, shouldn't even be used anymore. These are plants that are running at less than 50% um, productivity versus a modern coal-fired plant that's usually in the 80s, a modern natural gas plant that's usually uh, in the 80s. Do you happen to know what percentage of our coal crop, if I can call it, that is being exported overseas? I don't, but, but we know that a big problem in terms of of climate change as a global phenomenon is that we are, mo much of the market is outside the United States for coal because the United States has really gone over the natural gas in particular as an alternative. Um, Which is equally 
dis- disturbing or maybe more disturbing. Well, correct, because, of the, because methane emissions. the methane yeah. emissions associated with the mining of natural gas, and then, of course, it still produces carbon dioxide. It's just at a somewhat lower level than coal, but it, it, natural gas clearly doesn't have the secondary health side effects of soot as well as groundwater contamination. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the, the most cost-effective way of replacing a coal plant is just conserve energy. Yeah. You know, and we we don't ever seem to see that, but that is clearly the cheapest way to mitigate the damage from use of coal in electrical generation outside of an industrial setting. In an industrial setting, it, it, it probably makes sense, but that's very small scale compared to so my, you know, my, the electrical another, generation. Another question that, uh, that comes to mind is that the uh, you said some of these uh, ponds where they store the coal ash are 50 to 75 years old, and yet it sounds like um, like was it, was the Obama administration in 2015 the first federal effort to regulate these sites to put some some parameters on what was allowed? Uh, unfortunately, yes. Wow, that that says volumes. I mean, how 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 can we have gone that long without addressing something that's so obviously a health risk? Well, I think what happened was is that um, there was legal action against a couple of the southern utilities, in, in particular Duke Energy that made the issue much more visible. What was that legal action and what did that involve? Uh, Duke Energy was found to have corroded pipes below a pond that they knew full well were leaking and was contaminating the site. Um, and maybe beyond? Correct. Right. And so yeah. the, that was probably the, big f- the, bi- the first big case that involved coal ash uh, contamination. So we have Duke Energy to thank for at least bringing it to our attention. That's correct, and they're going to spend almost and they're going to spend almost three billion dollars mitigating billion. three billion mitigating their plants just in North Carolina. And guess who's going to pay at least a third of that? The ratepayers, uh, right? So when right. the Trump administration tells you about how you have to have cheap energy, it doesn't stay cheap when you have to mitigate well, pollution. Well, this is uh, interesting stuff, uh, Charles. We have not. I think we've talked only once before about coal ash, and that was a specific site. Um, Yeah, good information, disturbing information, um, but hopefully um, the more people know, the the more likely we are to see pressure on our elected officials to do something. And apparently it's a, it's an issue we need to address at the state level as well. Absolutely, at the state yeah. levels where, where the action's at. All right, thanks, folks. Ed Fallon here with Dr. Charles Goldman on the Fallon Forum.